Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and muser of metacognition, David Peterson. very excited about this episode on autopilot thinking. But first, I want to address a follow-up question that came from the last episode where I featured an interview with Dr. John Crispin of Alaska State University. So on that podcast, John and I were talking about innovation and the future of higher education, you know, as we see innovation coming to all our lives. And we discussed that a bit on the podcast. So someone wrote in and said, hey, is the future of colleges and universities dim? And I think what they were really trying to get at is, is the model of how higher education works today, is that is that going to be able to continue in the manner that it is, or, or is it likely going to you know, radically change. And it made me think of uh, an event several years ago called Destination Experience. It's held in Jamaica, and I was asked to come and do a talk at that event. And in my research, in preparing for my comments at that event, I found this study, or a story rather, from the World Economic Forum that highlighted this young person, a teen from sub-Saharan Africa. And this individual had access to a mobile phone and YouTube. And so he had consumed every video he could get his hands on on carpology, which is the study of seeds. His family was a farming, uh, a part of a farming community. And so he started experimenting with the seeds where he would make these perforations in seeds um, so they could absorb more water, but not so much that it would damage the interior seed material. And, you know, if you're in a dry, arid climate like sub-Saharan Africa, water is very scarce and the ability for seeds to absorb more water would be crucial to germination. And sure enough, his family got a dramatic increase in crop yields as a part of his uh, experiments, right? So what's the point? Well, that African teenager had no formal education beyond what we would call elementary school, right? Now, Monsanto ultimately wound up hiring that kid and and licensed that technology, right? So here's somebody who has come up with a breakthrough uh, where they now do these micro perforations and seeds, um, and yet he didn't go to any kind of college and university. He was just accessing YouTube videos. So this idea of a formal education, particularly for many types of careers, may not really be necessary or, or even desirable. Now, personally, I think I want my primary physician to actually graduate medical school, not just be a thorough YouTuber, right? So, so I believe there is probably some areas in which formal education is still going to be uh, quite important. But I think colleges and universities must take a hard look at how, the, how their future model Uh, is set up. And if you're uh, a young person or a parent of a young person, this is kind of food for thought. You know, are are you going to take on $200,000 in student loans for a career that may not require a higher level degree? Okay, let's talk about autopilot 
thinking. Here's a question for you. How many decisions do you make in a day? Do you have a guess? Come on now. I know you know how to play. The price is right. Hmm. I think I probably dated myself right there. All right, let's let's see. Are, are we 100, 100 decisions? 500 decisions? 1,000? 2,000? Would you be surprised to know that scientists have determined that the average person makes about 35,000 decisions every day? Surprised by that number? Well, it turns out about 90% of those are unconscious decisions meaning that we make about 3,500 conscious decisions daily. That's a smaller number, but that still sounds like a lot of decisions. But then I found a study from Cornell University that determined that we make about 227 decisions every day just about food. Think about this. You know, well, should I get the pizza today? Nah, nah, that's not healthy. Uh, okay, I'll have salad. Uh, should I get the Greek or the Caesar salad? Maybe I'll get shrimp. No, wait, grilled chicken. Uh, that way I could justify dessert. <laughs> you can see how this can add up to 207, 227 very quickly. But here's the big point of the day. Most of those 3,500 decisions you make are likely made on autopilot. So what if I told you that the more experienced you are, the less likely it is you would come up with innovative ideas? Does that sound oxymoronic to you? Let's say you're a senior marketing executive. You've got 20 years of experience working in your industry and with your current company. You started in the proverbial mailroom. You worked your way through the organization. And in that time, you perform nearly every type of job and have been working in your current position as senior marketing executive for 12 years. If you think about the basic tasks of what you do as a marketing executive, how many repetitions of those basic tasks have you performed? Hundreds of times? Thousands of times? More likely tens of thousands of times, right? The more we repetitively do something, the more fixed we get in something how it should be done. And when we encounter something new, perhaps a little wrinkle of a typical marketing task, we're more likely to default to our time-honored methodologies when performing the new task, not really examining to see if this new wrinkle calls for some innovative change. Now, I call this process the numbing effect of routine. The numbing effect of routine. And it spawns autopilot thinking. And when we think on autopilot, it's the killer of creativity. How does this occur? So let's talk some brain science. You may know already that your brain is made up of a left and right hemisphere. You have a left brain, you have a right brain. Well, it turns out the left brain and the right brains have kind of divided up the task between them. The left brain, which many call the digital brain, is in charge of logic and reason. It's full of facts. It's very good at science and math. It's logical and makes decisions based on accumulative learning and all of the experience it gained. It controls motor skills and is engaged pretty much all the time as we eat and walk and talk. And if you're very lucky, play golf. The right brain 
is also called the analog brain. And this is the center of creativity. It's where poetry originates. It's where colors and art flow. It manages love and passion and yearning. And it's the source for the very creativity needed to fuel innovation. The left brain can think in a structured strategic way, but for true creative problem solving, you must engage your right brain. But there's a problem. The left brain dominates the right brain. Like a a know-it-all school kid who has every answer, the left brain jumps in every moment to provide the answer to any given question. And your right brain can hardly get any thought edgewise. If I said the word horse to you, your left brain immediately conjures up an image of what a horse to be. Think about it in your mind. You can see that horse but you have no context. Do do you know whether I'm talking about the four-legged animal or the trick shot basketball game? Let me try this. In your mind, spell out the word coast. Say those letters with me. C-O-A-S-T. Okay, now quickly answer this question. What do you put in a toaster? If you thought toast, then you just experienced an example of what I call autopilot thinking. So I conditioned you to think of toast by first introducing the similar sounding word coast, and then the device itself has the word toast in it. So the left brain quickly put the thought through your mind that a toaster is associated with toast. And many of you probably thought toast, but you don't put toast into a toaster. You put in bread. And some of you may have thought bread. And if you did, it was probably because you paused long enough to override the autopilot thinking and said, wait a second, he's trying to trick me. And maybe you came up with bread. And you know what? If you thought toast, hey, don't despair. But do understand that you succumb to autopilot thinking. Now, even if we were to completely shut down the left brain, The right brain doesn't always get us to where we need at the moment that we need it. It takes time. It searches through all of this information we've processed and stored over our lifetimes. And eventually, it'll come up with the answer. Eventually. Consider this. You're you're standing at the water cooler and you're talking with a coworker, just chit-chatting. And there's this song and you said, oh my gosh, I just heard this most amazing song, but you can't remember the name of the artist. And you're like, you, uh, you know, the oh, the guy, his, um, oh my gosh, his name is, uh, oh, Adam, you saw him on the show the other night. It's, his name is, oh, it's a planet, right? You're just so frustrated because try as you might in that moment, you can't think of the name. So the moment passes, you go on about your day, you completely and totally forget about it. The next morning, while you're brushing your teeth, bam, the name Bruno Mars pops into your head. Now, your left brain couldn't care less about the water cooler moment. It just moved on to the next thing. But for 18 hours, your right brain was seeking and searching your memory and, and, and looking for it, saying, I know I can get this. And then it found it, but then it needed that opportunity to sort of jump into your conscious thought while the left brain was sometimes otherwise engaged, i.e., brushing your teeth. That's why you know this happens. You, you have these answers that pop into your head while you're washing your hair or brushing your teeth or, or some other kind of motor skill activity. While that left brain is busy with that, 
the right brain gets into the game. Okay, back to the water cooler. It's later that morning, right? So you had this epiphany, brushing your teeth. Now it's 10 o'clock. You're at the water cooler, and the same coworker comes up, and you go, hey, 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 I remember the artist's name. And he or she says, cool, who was it? And you go, and you can't remember. <laughs> oh my gosh, how frustrating. Now, this is really important. The right brain will come up with amazing insight and bring it to your conscious mind, but it is not in charge of memory. It's like, it's, it's like, hey, I did my job. Here you go. Bruno Mars, good luck with that. And it moves on to do other things. It's, it's not, it's not going to you know, keep that in your, in your conscious mind until 10 o'clock at the water cooler. So how do you remember the insights that your right brain provides? Write it down. Write it down. Capture it in your phone as a memo. What, whatever it takes for you to capture that information. You have to capture your ideas or kiss them goodbye. Uh, somebody recently told me that the shortest pencil is better than the longest memory. Oh, I love that. The shortest pencil is better than the longest memory. Write it down. Okay. So, okay, we can... We can now know that we can get into a rut with autopilot thinking, and we've determined that the left brain is a bully, doesn't let the right brain get into the game. So what's the practical application of all this? Well, as we think about how rapidly changing the business landscape is, whether we're a business owner or actively involved in business, or if we're a young person about to enter that business world, we know that things are changing rapidly and business as usual is probably more better said business is unusual. Right. So the ability for us to uh, identify important developments, brainstorm innovative solutions is going to be a mission critical skill. Whether we're practicing it or not, we're going to have to be looking for ways that things get done differently. How are we how are we going to identify those instances where something new requires creative thinking and not just rely on the automated left brain old school decision making? So here's a key to identifying whether we're open to new ideas that will transform old, tired thinking. And that has to do with how do we deal with questions that are posed by new, probably younger employees. So let's consider John. He's a 24-year-old business major. He's just started a new job. So John's going through orientation and training, and he's being exposed to processes and procedures that have been created for all of these daily tasks that his job requires. Now, most of these have been honed over years of activity, experience, trial and error, you know, kind of gets codified into this really well-documented procedure. But now John is examining these five steps for some daily repetitive task, and he's confused. He's scratching his head, what is the purpose for step four? It doesn't make any sense to John, right? So John represents this new pair of eyes that, that haven't experienced the thousands of repetitions of this procedure, right? So there's something that doesn't make sense to John. Hayes, a millennial, raises his hands and goes, hey, why do we do step four? Now, I generally find that there's two ways that somebody responds to someone like John who's asking a question about, this process. One is to say, this is the way we do things. Like, John, here at Acme, step four comes after step three, and it's before step five. This is how we do things around here. 
So you've got, you know, it's kind of um, a very unsatisfying uh, type response, I would think. And, and certainly if John is like many millennials, and if that response is kind of endemic to how the organization operates, John probably won't stick around uh, for very long, right? So he's going to go look for a place where his input is more likely to be welcomed. The other response is something more encouraging, where you you basically reach out to John and maybe other millennials like them and, and think about any challenges they make about assumptions of, of products or products or process or prospects is, is something that should be looked at very carefully as a new insight and not in any way discouraged. In fact, you should reward, you should give kudos to those who are asking those kinds of questions. Because maybe step four was created years ago and the reason for it no longer exists. Maybe it can be eliminated. If so, then get rid of it. it you know, it's amazing how much we cling to these time-honored things that quite frankly are no longer even necessary. Now, it may be that step four is some regulatory requirement. It's a mandated thing. Okay, so explain that to John and help him understand why we have to do it. But be rude or ignore John and his questions or legitimate requests for clarification at you and your company's peril. Autopilot thinking has you likely still advertising on billboards and newspapers or making sure that you're listed in the phone book just as you did 10 years ago. Autopilot thinking has you forcing customers into limited choices when tailored services are available from innovative competitors. Autopilot thinking has a financial institution turning down a loan request from a longtime customer based on a single credit score due to the lack of other innovative funding options. So this brings me to a story that occurred when I had GoLeaf Technology. So this was a software company that I founded back in the early 90s, and we were focused on electronic banking and payments. And one of the software products that we created was ACH Origination. Now, for those of you who don't know, ACH is the automated clearinghouse. This is where you get direct deposit of payroll or other automated credits. And you also have all of the prearranged debits, things where mortgage payments and phone bills and stuff that automatically debit to your, to your bank account. And we were focused on community financial institutions, banks and credit unions uh, that were smaller. And by the time the mid-2000s came around, we had many thousands of financial institutions. We had over a thousand financial institutions just using our ACH origination software. And of course, what those institutions did is they used the web to actually allow their business customers to originate their debits and credits, which would then flow in through uh, the ACH operator, the Federal Reserve System to post to all of these accounts. So, you know, we had literally tens and tens of thousands of businesses across a thousand plus financial institutions that were using this system every day to do transactions. So one day, might have been a Wednesday, if, if memory serves. Uh, the system 
which again was all based on the the internet, just started slowing down. It didn't it didn't stop. It didn't quit. It just started to slowly ramp down, and 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 ultimately we came to call this the death spiral, where more and more people would see the system were slow, so they would actually cancel sessions, thinking that something was wrong, and open new session, which then exacerbated the problem. And so um, it was a very frustrating time because you know we went to look at this uh, as any software company did as a bug. And if you know software, you know that software has bugs. And some bugs are very, very minor, like a word wrap um, you know, on, on, a, on a report. Uh, some are a nuisance, but there's a workaround. This was what we call a severity one bug, which literally was stopping the program from working. And so I would, you know, get on the phone, you know, this, we had presidents of banks calling in saying, hey, what's going on with the software? And so we went in and we looked at a few things and we fixed, you know, made some changes, whatever. And the next day, the software was fine. I was like, oh, okay, well, that was kind of a weird blip. And then two days later, the death spiral occurred again. And we couldn't figure it out. We went in and looked, we changed a few things. It went away. And, you know, I'm starting to get more and more calls from banks saying, hey, what's going on here? Uh, finally, it, it was happening on a, on a recurring basis. And try as we might, we couldn't determine uh, what the bug was, even though we kept finding and fixing things. We weren't finding the actual cause to this. And, and it got so bad that I was literally on conference calls with hundreds of bank C-suite folks who were angry and upset at me, primarily because we wouldn't fail over to the backup side. But, but the problem is, is that the backup side is an identical set of software than what we have on our primary side. The issue was not some problem with the service. The problem was in the code, and going to the backup site wouldn't have solved anything. Finally, uh, one of our senior programmers who knew somebody at another company, but they had met at one of the Microsoft uh, scrums and, and get-togethers that they had, he said, why don't we bring this guy in? He's he's somebody who's completely not out, you know, doesn't know anything about uh, financial services software, but he's a pretty smart guy. And he comes in, he takes a look, he goes, well, this sure sounds like a simple memory override. That's what I, you know, I'm looking at this. It's a memory override. Now, early on, weeks and weeks and weeks ago, we had we had looked at memory overrides and had cast it out as not uh, not an issue. But now, going back and 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 really kind of examining uh, uh, again, based on this one individual's insight, we found a single customer at a single financial institution out of all of the tens of thousands of customers on there had created individual batches for every single transaction. Meaning instead of having one transaction with a thousand batches or having, you know, 18 batches with a thousand transactions in each. They had created 18,000 batches each with a single transaction, which is not something that we had ever considered that somebody would do, something we never tested before. And yet, because of the way that they did that and a flaw in our software, every time that particular user logged on, the system went into a death spiral. And in fact, when we went back and looked, every single time the system went into a death spiral, it was because that one customer had logged on. So, so we were able to very quickly and easily find and fix that error in our product, but only, only after weeks and weeks of pain and suffering and having to get on calls with angry, upset customers because the system was not performing in the manner in which it should. Now, what was my learning lesson from that? Why did I wait so long to bring in somebody 
who wasn't in our forest and didn't look every day at our trees to provide us with insight. We have to be open to the fact that we are not going to see something in the same way that somebody from the outside would. And if there is a situation in your life or in your company, similar to the one that I just described for Goldleaf, be quicker to bring in that outside insight and then be open and pay attention to what kind of insight they provide. I think what it means to be in business is fundamentally changing. So we must be open to new ways that we can innovatively capitalize on opportunities. So how will you know that you're too quick to be in autopilot thinking? Well, if you openly challenge the status quo each and every time a question is raised by a new employee or by current and future customers, right? If you can find yourself being open to those kinds of inquiries, right? And if you start actively looking for ways to get outside input on your products and your processes, you don't necessarily have to wait until you're in a tight like I was at Goldleaf Technologies. You could, on a regular basis, bring in people that you know and respect but are outside your industry to just spend a day with you or even a couple of hours to look and listen and give you insight on what they see. If they're not in your forest and not familiar with your trees, bring them in and then listen to them and make appropriate changes, perhaps after you do some brainstorming and some curated exploration of how the future could look and act differently. Autopilot thinking is not going to cut it for our future success. We must find ways to unlock our right brain and be quicker to think bread, not toast. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at dpspeaks.com and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon.